Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now begin in earnest our study of this amazing chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, written in the mid-60s A.D., to a church that was relatively strong and um, well-taught, a church that had established leadership, a church that was able to carry forth the, the gospel to those who had not heard there in that most preeminent city in all the empire, a church of many people and many opportunities, wealthy church, a church that would have been the very epicenter of the Christian world at that time. And so Paul, very concerned that he actually write a letter to this group of believers to encourage them and build them up, to inform them, instruct them, and in some ways to mildly even correct them, pens this letter, 16 chapters in your English Bible, broken down into kind of three main sections, the first eight chapters talking about the glory of salvation, chapters 9 to 11 talking about Israel and how that fits in with our understanding of the church, and then chapter 12 through 16, really the application of all of these truths. And so we're kind of at a pivot point here in our study of the book of Romans as we get into chapter 9. So in the first five verses... By way of outline this morning, I want to show you three things in particular. I want to show you the apostles' pain. Then we're going to take a look at the Jews' privilege. And then finally, the Messiah's power. So the apostles' pain, the Jews' privilege, and the Messiah's power. First five verses, Romans 9, follow along as I read. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's begin by looking at the apostles' pain. See that in the very first part of this section. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's Paul's condition. That's how he's writing, the, the place from which he's writing. And he begins by, by sort of compounding this affirmation that he is telling the truth. Now you might say, well, Paul's an apostle. He's writing, you know, the Bible after all. Why would he need to tell us that he's speaking truth? Isn't it to be assumed that he's speaking truth? Well, here, Paul isn't saying I'm speaking the truth as opposed to the times when I don't tell the truth. He is saying, what I'm about to declare to you is so radical, it is so unusual, it is so opposite to what you think anybody could possibly say and mean it, that I've got to affirm that what I'm saying is truth. And that I'm not just making this up. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm, I'm, I'm not just making a statement to get your attention. I, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to be humorous or uh, just catch your attention with some radical statement. No, what I'm saying is actually the truth. 
And he's going to bump it up against the fact that what he's even saying, that what he's saying isn't even possible. We'll see it in a moment. So he's saying, what I'm saying is absolutely true, though it is absolutely impossible. He's going to the very edge, the, the very greatest pressure that you could possibly put on yourself to reveal your heart. And he says this of, of his situation, that I'm speaking the truth and I'm doing this in Christ. I'm calling Christ himself to testify. I would say this in front of Jesus himself, that what I'm telling you is true. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So, so not only Christ, if he were here to testify, but the very Holy Spirit who indwells me is telling me that I am telling the truth. I'm not making any of this up. What are you saying, Paul? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Just stop there for a moment. Your Bible translation might say sorrow and anguish or grief and sorrow. Whatever your translation, there's two words there and they're both profound. They're both words that are not just tossed out casually. Words inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also words chosen by Paul. The first word is a word that meant the sorrow that comes from looking around and seeing the circumstances around you that are beyond your control. Circumstances that are, that are just crushing you. It's the external pressure of failure, the external pressure of fear, the world, as it were, coming down upon you. This is the idea. And so Paul says when he talks about sorrow here or grief, that it's an external objective sense of loss. It can be quantified. It, when the report comes back, you can actually measure your losses. It's this gut-wrenching breathtaking realization of what is gone. It's like those images you have on the internet of the floods that are ravaging parts of Germany right now. You look around at these towns in the before picture and the after picture, and the after picture shows these towns completely swept away. That, that, that defines kind of the grief that Paul's going through. He's looking around and something's been completely gone. The loss is unimaginable. What's the loss? The loss he's suffering through is the reality that his own people, the Jews, who were given everything and had every advantage, had essentially turned their back on Christ. He's writing to a group of people that comprise the church that are made up of mostly Gentiles who were the few that believed the gospel of Jesus Christ after he was rejected by the Jews who made a partnership with Rome to have him killed in Jerusalem. I mean, let's be honest, from an external perspective, the gospel isn't doing well. I mean, if this was a movement, if this was a startup, if, if this was a company you were launching, you would not look at the results of the first 30 years and say, yeah, this is really doing well. I mean, this is going to go places. We're going to have a really successful IPO. I mean, everything here is looking good for us. As a matter of fact, everything was looking worse for them year by year by year as persecution increased. So Paul is saying, I am sorrowful over what has been lost. But there's more than that because he has inside a sorrow as well, an anguish, a grief, and it's in his heart, he says. And remember, the, the way they thought back then, your, your heart was not really the seat of your emotions. Your heart was where you did your thinking. So you, you kind of say in his mind, if you wanted to get into your heart where your emotions were, they actually said their bowels. Kind of different. So, you know, you did your thinking in your heart, you did your feeling in your bowels, like in the pit of your stomach. 
So you wouldn't draw a heart if you were saying that you loved somebody or were emotional. You would draw your, well, no, you probably wouldn't. But anyway, it would totally transform the card industry today. But anyway, point being, he's thinking about it. It's this thing he cannot turn off in his mind. His heart is broken over the condition of his people. And if you think he is just merely depressed about it, when we dig into the actual terminology, this particular word, it only appears here and in 1 Timothy 6.10, it means a consuming pain. One person who wrote a lexicon described it this way and defined it as emotionally lethal. Now, I don't want to go down this path too far for fear of putting a thought in your mind that is not true, but it would not be a stretch to say that somebody who would be suicidal would be thinking this way. I mean, Paul is saying that there is apparently no hope out of this. It is emotionally lethal. It is destroying him on the inside. So he's being crushed from the outside, destroyed, as he were, from the inside. And this isn't happening occasionally. These aren't bouts of depression that he's going through. He uses the word continually. It's always going on. That's why I called this sermon the brokenhearted evangelist. He's going out into the world, preaching the gospel to his own people and to the Gentiles, but he is doing it from the vantage point of somebody crushed and broken. And I really don't think you can be an effective, even shepherd, much less evangelist, unless you've reached that point. Because he says here in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how bad it is. Just consider what he said there. The real reason why we have to understand he's not lying. The real ground for how he could say this being his utter distress and sorrow and anguish because he is willing to say that I could wish myself accursed. Anathema is the word in the Greek. It means to be completely cast away from God. It means to be damned is the word that you would use. It means to be cursed. It means to be sent to hell. Paul says, I would rather, if I could, be cast into hell myself if it meant that my people would be saved. That level of emotion, that level of consuming, empathetic love fuels his mission. He is in that pain zone that keeps him going over and over again into places where he knows he is going to be beaten and possibly killed simply for bringing the truth of the gospel. This is Paul's way of life. The one of the place I told you where this is used is in 1 Timothy 6.10. Run through, driven through with many pains. You chase down comfortable life and money versus what God has called you to be instead. And compromise comes. You come to the end of it and you realize what you've forsaken, what you've given up, what you've lost, this absolutely consuming pain. But I want you to notice there in verse 3, he says this, I could wish this. I could wish this. Um, in the grammar, it makes it clear that he's saying it can't happen. He's saying I could wish it. I mean it. I really good, could. The motivation is there, but it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because at the end of Romans chapter 8, he just told us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? So he says, I just told you nothing could separate us from the love of God. And yet, I could wish that even if it were possible, I can genuinely say that I would wish myself to be separated from that love if it meant that my fellow brethren were redeemed. 
That's his heart going in to Romans 9. Why do I emphasize this? Because when I couple that with the end of the section, go down to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. We looked at this last week. Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The words to everyone who believes. That's what rounds out this section. A call to everyone. A willingness to reach people no matter what their external condition would indicate their interest in the gospel might be. A desire to to go to the very ends of the earth with that truth. A willingness to do whatever it takes and pay whatever it costs. That everyone who believes closes his, his argument and what opens it is his broken heart for those who have yet to believe. And the reason why we emphasize that is because Romans 9 is so often used by people to simply drill in to us the, the concept of the sovereign election of God. And that doctrine being true and precious can end up being wrapped in a rather unpleasant package and given to people as if it were a weapon used against those who have yet to understand that doctrine versus a glorious truth meant to, to, to undergird our, our emotional distress that, that people have yet to believe. You see, the doctrine of election cannot be taught from a cold, callous, kind of frozen, chosen vantage point where, where we merely list out the doctrine, give a bunch of cross-references, and make everyone who doesn't believe that feel like they've made some horrible error in judgment. But rather, it's a doctrine that I believe to be true and precious, but it's a doctrine couched within the setting of a broken heart so that it is never delivered in a callous way, but rather through tears and pleadings that those who hear that gospel might believe. So that's going to be the undercurrent for the next several weeks as we study it. But that's the the apostle's pain. Let's look, though, at the the Jew's privilege. Why why all of this? Look what he says, verse 4. It's amazing. Take this through the first half of verse 5. For they are Israelites... And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Right up until the talk of Messiah, you have these privileges that are given to them. You see, when Paul went to them, he, he went to them as a people who already had knowledge, a people who already had truth. Of people who already had all of the privileges and all the advantages that many other nations didn't have. Now, why is that significant? Because I want to show you that you can go with a burdened heart to reach people who have no knowledge or a burdened heart to reach people who have lots of knowledge. What about the first one? The first one comes from an example of someone who went to people with no knowledge. And I, and I love this. I'm reading this book right now. It's a biography of John G. Patton. And... Um, at the beginning, he, he talks about his desire to go to the New Hebrides, which are the islands just off the coast of Australia, to bring the gospel to people who had never heard before. In fact, they were cannibals, like real cannibals, like flesh-eating cannibals. And um, by the way, this is, this is my, my missionary biography bookmark, which is uh, a painting called Unlimited Guest List, and, and it's, a, it's, it's actually a painting kind of like the, 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 the painting of all the apostles at the Last Supper, but it shows them all depicted from all the different tribes and tongues and nations, and it's by Hyatt Moore, and I got this from Scott, 
And so I keep this whenever I'm whenever I'm reading missionary biographies. It reminds me because Seward Fugio has some of his artwork at their at their place there in Paraguay, which you could visit if you'll go on a short-term mission trip. How's that? Fit a plug right in there. Anyway, in this missionary biography, though, I love this. So John Patton, he's a pastor, middle-aged guy, doing well at a regular church. People there are thriving under his ministry. Everything's going fine. Then he gets gripped with a desire, like Paul has here, a pain, a desire, an anguish for those who have never heard. And, and, and this is what he says, talking about the South Sea cannibals. Quote, I saw them perishing for lack of knowledge of the true God and his son Jesus, while my Green Street people, these are the people that he was preaching to in England on Green Street, while my Green Street people had the open Bible and all the means of grace within easy reach, which if they rejected, they did so willfully and at their own peril. Wow. You see, he says, I was preaching to these people. They've got the Bible. They've got the gospel. They've heard it a hundred times. Kind of doesn't mean much to them. They're, they're very loose in their commitment to Christ. You know, not much really happening. He says, yeah, they like to come to church. They like to hear a good sermon, but that's really it. They go off, kind of live like everybody else the rest of the time. Not a lot of commitment, not a lot of sacrifice. He says, you know what? They have it. They've got everything that they need. They can believe, and if they reject it, it's at their own peril. I want to go somewhere where no one's heard. And when this news got out, there were some people in his church that didn't think it was a very good idea. And so one gentleman, you've probably heard this story before, um, old guy in the church said, you know, you're crazy to go out there. You know, you can't go to that place. There's cannibals there. You're going to get eaten. And he says this, and, and this is wonderful. Now, the guy's name was Mr. Dixon. And I don't know who Mr. Dixon is, but Mr. Dixon's like only claim to fame now is that he said this, and he probably shouldn't have because, and I don't know, I don't know where John Patton came up with this off the cuff. I don't know if like, <laughs> I wish I could just think of these things right away and say them like he said them, but this was his response to Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon says, don't go there, there's cannibals, they're going to eat you. And he says this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is very soon to be laid in the grave. There, to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow. I bet Mr. Dixon didn't say much after that. What drove Patton, what drove him was a love for the lost. What drove him was to go to a place where people didn't know anything. What drove Paul? He was driven by a love for the lost and driven by people who knew everything. So when you read Romans 9, it's to a people who he says are not brand new to this doctrine, but rather to people who have heard it maybe a hundred times but have yet to believe it. And if there's a compelling sort of thrust in my own thinking as I stand before you. It's that. You're the Green Street Church. You're not cannibals living on an island somewhere who've never heard this. In some ways, it's kind of harder to press these truths into the minds of people who have heard it a hundred times because they can go anywhere and hear it. I would implore you as you listen to the sermons through this chapter to reopen your mind, till the fallow ground, open up again to hear these truths maybe for the first time. Clearly. Let them change you, or perhaps igniting you a desire to make sure that others hear it. But what did they have? Look down at verse 4, beginning there. These were the Israelites. These were the Jews. What did they have? They had the adoption. They were, they were chosen by God. I, I love this doctrine. It's the doctrine of choosing. 
And when you were chosen, when you were adopted in Roman culture, Greek culture versus Jewish culture, it was a little bit different. Um, in Greek culture, you were adopted into the family. In, in, in Jewish culture, you were, you were adopted in, and sometimes you were made the son, you were made the heir because there was no heir. You, you were made the first son so that the previous generation, the father, had somebody to give everything to, his inheritance was given to you. Now, now what's ironic about this is that he says you were adopted as sons, but God didn't need to adopt anyone. He had a son. But he adopts them to be a joint heir. He adopts them to be a fellow son, another son, an equal son, brought along to share in that inheritance, brought along beside Jesus Christ himself. And we chose them and adopted them. He gave a pattern of this all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see this in more detail in a moment when we talk about the patriarchs. But I think it was last week I shared with you just an overall view that we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. And it was just this week as I was contemplating the situation with Joseph that I remembered that when Joseph's father was getting to know his grandsons, Jacob, remember he comes down to Egypt, rescued from the famine. And there he is and he reaches out to bless his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And, and Manasseh was older than Ephraim. And so what you're supposed to do is you put your right hand on the older one and your left hand on the younger one. You bless them. But right as he's about to do that, Jacob does this switch. He crosses his arms over. And it says Joseph was, he was not impressed. Like Joseph was not happy about this. Joseph's, Joseph's thinking, Dad, it's not the way it goes. You're supposed to do this. Bless this one, not this one. Jacob's like, leave me alone, son. I know what I'm doing. He blesses one over the other, even though they're out of order. This is common in, in the, the story of the patriarchs. Why? Because God is saying that I have a chosen line. I have a chosen genealogy. From this will come the Christ. And he, he chooses some over others. And so this adoption isn't a random act of kindness. This adoption is a deliberate act of choosing. He adopted the nation and he allowed us to be grafted in as Gentiles. But there is also the glory and the covenants and the law and the worship. And if I can just take you to a text of Scripture to back that up, I'd like to do that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn over to Psalm 19. Now this is where I'm going to go just to briefly lay out for you in more detail what it means to have the glory and the law. The glory and the law. Psalm 19, familiar psalm. First of all, the glory. Beginning in verse 1, we read this. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the what? Glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. You see, he pictures there the universe, the solar system, all of creation, and he says all of it is crying out in the glory of God. It was the Jews 
who understood for the first time, based on the writings of Moses in the Pentateuch, that it was God who created the universe. It was God who put all of these things into motion. And they had the knowledge that the pagans didn't have, who didn't know where things came from. They were, they were worshiping gods of their own creation. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they mock them. They say, you take a piece of wood and you turn it into an idol and you fall down and you worship it. And then with the rest of the wood, you build a fire and make dinner. You don't even know who you're worshiping. Your, your God can't do anything. It can't see, hear, taste, smell, touch. can't create. And Paul says that you were given the glory of the revelation of God in creation. Among many other ways, his glory is displayed. Perhaps most preeminently that when the temple was finally built by Solomon, remember his glory descends in the cloud like it did upon the mountain when the law was given. And it descended there and it rested with them. They were given the glory. Now, not only the glory, but they are also given his law. Take these sort of in that order. Look down at the rest of the psalm because it's so clear. What is the, the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Beloved, do you love the law of God? Do you love your Bible? Do you love the truth? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you thank God for it? Does it revive your soul? Does it make you say, this is sweeter than Netflix? Does it make you say, this is more precious to me than whatever other book I'm reading at the time? That this is not some arduous ordeal that I have to go through every day to check off some legalistic program to say I've read through it in a year. What is it to you? Look at how it's described. It's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules. This is God communicating. If there's one thing that creation taught, it is that God in his grace would reveal himself to us, not only in the general revelation of creation, but here in the special revelation of his word. And what is it? It is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true. In a world of lies and mystery, it is true. That's why it's desired. That's why it's sweet. And that is why it protects us from going down paths that would destroy us and rewards us in ways unimaginable when we follow it. What a glorious gift. So the glory and the law... But there's more than that. In fact, if you go back to Romans 9, just let your eyes fall back on there for a moment. Back to Romans 9. So he says, you've been given the adoption. We talked about that, the glory, the law. What about the covenants and the worship? Let's go back and take a look at that for a moment. The covenants and the worship. Now, the covenants were the covenants that were made with individuals. The covenants, if you go back, remember, was the covenant made with Abraham and then a covenant made with Moses, and then a covenant made with David, and then the new covenant in Christ. 
And we discussed those at length a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into that here in more detail. But suffice it to say that these covenants would have been known by the hearers. They would have identified what those were. The promises made to Abraham, the promises made to Moses, the promises that were made to David, and then ultimately through Christ. But there's more than that. Because there's also this notion of of, of worship. They've also been given the ability to worship. And this is where I want us to focus our attention, okay? So... If you've been drifting, come on back. Here's your chance to just come on back. I mentioned Netflix a while ago and your mind went way off into all those episodes you haven't watched yet. I know how it works. Come on. Let's talk about worship for a minute. Why is worship so important? Worship's important because one of the most gracious things that God ever did for us was to explain how we could worship him in spirit and in truth. What we, what we do here on a Lord's Day morning in, in singing and in speaking and in praying and in reading is instructed to us in the word, and that's a gift. That is a gift because you don't want to go before the one true living God of the universe with something he doesn't want. And so in his kindness, he has revealed to us how we worship. And one of those vivid examples of that comes in Leviticus chapter 10. So turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus is at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus 10. It's those pages that are still stuck together by the gold gilding on your Bible, but that's all right, just, you know, pry those open. Nice, clean, fresh page, maybe. I'm just joking. I know you all read Leviticus all the time with fervent interest. This is a section where God is revealing to uh, the Israelites, to the Jews, how they are to worship him. He's giving them the rules, the order of service, as it were. How is it supposed to work? And you can see here how serious he is about worship. He, he gives them the instructions, and then they go through a ceremony, and according to his law, and at the end of chapter 9, after they have done this, fire comes down from before the Lord and consumes the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. So, so they've just seen what it's like to worship God properly, that they bring these animals and there is a particular process by which they present those animals to God on the altar. And he came down this consuming fire and he consumes that sacrifice indicative of all of their sins being incinerated, as it were, and then being forgiven and made right with him. And then, and then chapter 10 comes along and reveals this shocking narrative. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. So you have Aaron, the brother of Moses. So Moses' nephews, Right? Moses was the main leader. He was the one who brought the law of God. He, he guided the people, led the people. Aaron, his brother, was the mouthpiece. He was the priest, the pastor. He was the guy who ran the services. And then Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And these two boys took a censer, big big dish, and they put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, And they offered unauthorized fire, strange fire, some translations say, before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. These young men came along with their idea of worship. They were going to do it their way. They thought this was fine or this was better. What do they do? They take a big bronze dish and they put hot coals in it and then they put a specified blend of incense that you are not allowed to use for any other purpose and you scoop it on top of the hot coals and smoke arises up and that's meant to sort of symbolize the prayers going up to God. 
And these young men who were arrogant enough to come before the Lord with worship he had not instructed found out what happens when you try that. And they brought before him their own version. And the result was this. Verse 2, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before Yahweh, the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what Yahweh has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses said, this is exactly what God should have done. Instead of bringing fire to consume the sacrifice, he brought fire to consume the sacrificer. Because the person who came with that didn't bring it according to his law, did not worship according to his rule. And there's a fascinating account here in other part of the Pentateuch where Moses goes up to Aaron and he says, you're not even allowed to to mourn for these boys. Don't you dare even mourn for them. It's very interesting to me that, you know, they came... To, to, to bring this before the Lord of their own accord and their own way. And God's response was to consume them with fire. And it says that they died before the Lord, before Yahweh. Now, I'm sure that the people heard about it. They were aware of it. But ultimately, it's between you and God. God put them to death in front of God because God cares about how God is worshipped. And I do believe, without stretching this too much, that that does apply in New Testament, New Covenant church worship. It does matter how we worship. It matters what we sing. It matters how we preach. It matters what we do when we assemble. It's not some casual free-for-all. And if the God is not esteemed, if God is not feared, the word is not preached, if the songs that we sing are not genuinely worshipful, if it's a thoughtless sort of episode, then I believe that we ought to be thankful that God is not striking more people dead because he hasn't changed. And coming before him has not gotten easier. But with that, let's go back to Romans 9 and continue our study. He had given them the adoption, the glory as revealed in creation and redemption, the covenants. He had given them the law. He had given them worship. Greek word where we get the English word liturgy from, the liturgy, the order of service. He had given them that. And then finally, the promises. Back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, disciples are told to wait for the promises. Wait for the fulfillment of the promise, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait for all of the things that God has said he will do for you. And then verse 5, the other privilege to them belong the patriarchs. The patriarchs. This again, Abraham, beginning this line, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph to Ephraim, and on and on and on, all the way through, leading ultimately to Christ. All of these privileges were given to the Jews. And so Paul says that my heart is breaking because I want them to understand that everything that God has given them since about 1,500 years earlier when the law was given to Moses from when Paul is writing, all the way up until when Paul is writing. He says, for all of these years, with all of this revelation, with all of these prophecies, they still reject it. And, and it's tearing them up. 
And he says, I want them to understand that they were chosen. And I want them to understand that just because they are Jews doesn't mean that they are going to be rescued based on their ethnicity because they have to be a true Israelite, a true Jew, one who is truly adopted, adopted by God in a spiritual sense, spiritual Israel. And so that's why his gospel message is fueled with a desire to see them understand it. They needed the gospel, and they needed to have all of that knowledge put in context so that they could believe. Believe in who, you ask? Well, that's our third point. So we've looked at the apostles' pain. We've looked at the Jews' privilege. How about, finally, the Messiah's power? The Messiah's power. You could say that his power, his praise, he becomes the one in focus now. Look what he says. The patriarchs, and from their race, he continues, according to the flesh, that means as Jews, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, the promised chosen one. It is that Christ that has been brought to them through their race. He is the one who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Out of the depth of Paul's sorrow, out of the depth of his pain, he suddenly transitions. He can't help it. He suddenly transitions into to praising the very God of whom he's preaching. He says, that, he says that from the race of the Jews comes Messiah, and the moment he mentions Christ, the moment he mentions Messiah, he just explodes into this doxology of praise. It is this Christ who is God over all. He acknowledges the deity of Jesus. He wasn't just a rabbi, wasn't just a good teacher, wasn't just somebody who laid down his life as a martyr. No, he was God, is God. And he says that this Christ, this Messiah, this God is God over all. And he is the one who is to be blessed forever. Now the whole rest of the chapter really shows us why it is that we are to praise Christ, the one who is blessed forever. It shows us what it means to take this knowledge of the truth that, that we now have and apply it to our understanding of salvation. But for today, let me just apply this in sort of three simple statements, okay? Number one, when it comes to pain, let me just ask you a question. Are you genuinely burdened for the lost? Are you genuinely burdened for the lost? Do you have a genuine desire in your heart to see people come to a knowledge of the truth? Are you like the hymn writer Isaac Watts, able to say, Lord, why was I a guest? Why, why would you reveal yourself to me. It is so gracious. It is so kind. It is so condescending to come down to reveal yourself to me. And then can you take that very same humility and apply it in the way that you love others? And I mean everyone. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to assume most of you don't have neighbors who are cannibals. I hope not. If so, don't invite me over. You don't have cannibals. You don't have people that are, that, are, that are so wicked, so immoral by any standard that, that you almost fear giving them the gospel because your very life is at stake. And yet a guy like John Patton says, that's exactly the person I want to go to. Why is that so Christ-like? It's so Christ-like because Christ found his way to the people with the greatest need. He said, I came here for the sick, not for the healthy. 
I came for the poor, not for the rich. I, I came for the one who understands their, 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 their need. I came for the one who is at the very bottom. I came for the least of these. And, and so in your world, as you interact with people, when you are suddenly struck by this revulsion because of a person's nature or deeds, can I challenge you this morning to pray that God would use that as a reminder that that might be precisely the person that you ought to be reaching out to with the truth? Because when you are your most revolting is when Christ pursued you to find you and to rescue you and to redeem you. And if you understand that, unless you think you are some, you know, first-round draft pick for the gospel kingdom, if you understand that and you see where you were and you realize everything that he has forgiven from you, uh, that you have done, then it's going to make it easier for you to genuinely and very simply preach the soul-rescuing gospel to those who seem to be people you would more preferably reject. Do you have a true love for the lost? Number two, do you understand the privileges that you've been given? Do you understand the privileges you've been given? Just a simple question. You, you, you might not reflect on it very often, but to be given the word of God, to be given the gospel, to be given an opportunity to be in a place where that truth is upheld and cherished and taught, to be in this day and age where you have a Bible in your own language, multiple Bibles in your own language and on your phone and free, <laughs> uh, when you have uh, absolutely boundless opportunity to receive good instruction so much that you could never even consume it all if you did nothing but listen to good sermons for the rest of your life. A church that cherishes the things that we do here, do you understand the privileges that you've been given? And if so, are you willing to confess to the Lord that quite often you don't take advantage of those and you really act no better than these ancient Jews did? Having been given all of this privilege and yet kind of rejecting it and instead developing their own religion, which was more comfortable for them. It just fit their style a little better. It was more aligned with what they would like to do in terms of worship. Remember Nadab and Abihu, what happened when they tried that. And then finally, do you really praise the power and the glory of the Savior? I mean, do you really do that? When we, when we sing today, when we gather like this, did you just sort of read the words, maybe mumble a little bit, hum the tune? Do you praise? Do you do what Paul does here when he can, contemplates the Savior? When he says that, that he is the Christ, the God over all, blessed forever. Again, a question, really. A question. Do we have a heart for the lost? Do we give thanks for the privileges that we enjoy? And do we truly praise? When we sing the words, all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Do we give thought to that? I was this morning when I sang that. I thought to myself when I sang that, you know what? Every indication that I have in the Bible is that angels were so impressive as creatures that whenever somebody found themselves in the presence of an angel, they were the ones who fell down prostrate. Do you remember that? Like, angels were not, not like the way we depict angels. They weren't like really pale, skinny, white men with wings or precious moments figurines. Um, no one would be afraid of those. These were, were, were incredible beings that, that, that when made visible and manifest before humans 
cause those people to fall down on their face as dead. And yet the angels were the ones that are falling prostrate in the presence of God. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, the symbol of power, and crown him Lord of all. Is that our mindset as we go into worship? I pray that if it wasn't when you came in, that it will be now. And if you have never yet surrendered, laid down your arms, and stopped trying to attain glory through your own religion or your own external conformity to rules and regulations, may today be the day when you embrace the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ alone because he has put an end to the law. He has put an end to your self-righteousness. He has put an end to your sin and given you his own righteousness. And that applies to everyone who believes. May today be the day of salvation for many. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this absolutely uh, incredible truth that is just so hard for us to get our minds around. Um, Paul's pain is, is so vivid here, his anguish. Lord, I confess that my anguish is not like that very often. Confess that my, my pain is more a pain of frustration, a pain of irritation, pain of being judgmental, pain of arrogant pride and lack of accomplishing what I think I should be doing at a certain timetable. I, I, I trust, Lord, there might be others here who feel the same way, and I pray that you would forgive us of these sins and instead give us a heart that is truly burdened for lost people and to love them the way that you loved, to, to show gentleness and compassion and grace and mercy, to be willing to, to lower ourselves and, as the Word says, not be conceited but to associate with those who are lowly. And may we not take any pride in that because if you would associate with us, our willingness to associate with others is infinitely less. Father, I also pray that you would help us to realize the privileges that we have, to not take lightly the joy of having the gospel, having your word, having your truth, being able to assemble with your people the joy of Christian fellowship. Oh God, I pray that all of these things would become the priorities for us that they should be so that we would not fall into this distressing trap of thinking that what we have is what we deserve versus what is given to us only by your sovereign grace. And also may that grace be abundantly real to us as we share it with others. I pray that we would see the great glory of our Lord and Savior Glory in his judgment, glory in his redemption, glory in his return, and glory in his church that he promises to indwell with the power of his spirit, that we might be able to lift our voices in songs of praise to the one true living God who will return to judge living and the dead, in whose name we pray, amen.